You're listening to Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Troy Sincock on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And very good morning, Easter Saturday. Hope you're having a great weekend, whatever you're up to thus far. Plenty of uh, dark clouds outside the studio as we speak, although the Bureau have said to us that uh, while there are showers, there's plenty of time in between those showers to get out there amongst it and spend some time in the garden. I'm joined once again by ABC gardening expert John Lamb. Good morning, Troy, and good morning, gardeners, and a happy Easter to everybody. A little bit damp starter there, Troy. We have got plenty of people letting us know how much rain uh, they've been experiencing too, and it does uh, seem to vary upon uh, you know wherever you're based. Um, 28 mil in Goolwa Beach for March. Last year, they had 8 mil. That's from Petrus at Goolwa Beach. That's a stark contrast. Uh, in Allgate, 12.5 mils for the last 48 hours, says Helen. Um, at Yatalunga, near One Tree Hill, had uh, 27 mils in March and 12.8 mils in the last two days uh, from Keith. And Sue at uh, Victor Central says 3.5 mils. Yes, it's pretty obvious that uh, across the suburbs and the hills, it's 10 to 15 millimetres twice. So there's about 25 to 30 millimetres for many people, which is very, very welcome. Sadly, I don't think it's going very far beyond Jeff's Cross looking at what's happening in country areas. And that's why I wanted to get some uh, calls in from country areas just to see what's actually happening. So they're getting clouds, I think a few drops of rain, but certainly not the kind of rain that they're looking for. But let's put that one to one side, I think, uh, and let's talk... looking at uh, what's going to happen and very shortly we'll be talking to uh, Jamie McElwain and we found out that that's the pronunciation <laughs> that uh, we should be using and Jamie of course is one of our top landscapers and uh, very shortly uh, Jamie will talk a little bit about the Landscape Festival next week and also ornamental grasses. How do you use an ornamental grass in a, in a landscape? And uh, then uh, later on we'll be talking a little bit about uh, well, all kinds of things, what to put in the garden, maybe a quick comment on the tomato survey. Jamie is certainly a top landscaper, won many of the awards here in South Australia with the Master Landscapers uh, of South Australia. Uh, he's also the chief organiser of the Landscape Festival coming up next weekend. And it's, uh, I think, quite different as a, as a festival because, well, we'll get Jamie to actually <laughs> uh, explain what it's about and then we'll talk ornamental grasses with Jamie. But, uh, Jamie, the festival is quite unique. Uh, can you explain why it's so unique? Unique. All right. Well, f- firstly, I'll say that these gardens in their current form have never and may never be open to the public again. So it's a once a opportunity to see these amazing gardens and beyond that you can get to meet the designers and landscapers who uh, in collaboration with the homeowners have created these bespoke uh, uh, designer gardens to suit their needs and their family's needs and uh, obviously the site as well. Going and looking and seeing how uh, or what's being presented and to be able to talk to the landscaper to be able to wheedle out some of those little secrets maybe. Totally. So this, um, look, there'll be a whole number of reasons why you might want to have a look at some of these gardens. First and foremost, just a good sticky beak at some fabulous gardens. Tick that one off. Um, There might be uh, a part of a garden 
or a theme in the garden that you that resonates with you when you think you know what I could probably emulate some of this or use this as inspiration at my place um, beyond that you can talk to the uh, designers and landscapers and say look uh, where did this come from or how did you envisage this being part of the garden or even beyond that saying look can you recreate this or or create some beautiful uh, a beautiful uh, garden for me at my place so you're pinching some good ideas and oh, saying totally. that can be part of my landscape. and the designers and landscapers are more than happy to share a lot of uh, little trade secrets and things uh, to assist and help and point people in different directions as far as um, you know enabling that how many of these landscapes will be open so there's 10 gardens we've got four gardens kind of west or southwest of the city so so brighton south up to you know henley beach um fulham um west beach and then we've got two just north we've got one in medindi one just east of um the town uh, east of adelaide in um glenburn road paynham um leabrook sorry and then we've got four in the hills so and, 10 in total. And some of those hills gardens, including, I think, two of them that uh, you've designed? Yeah, we've got a couple in there, but there are um, the, the, the variation in, in all of the gardens is, is immense. Um, there's a company that just does naturalistic, you know, um, uh, creeks and pools and waterfalls, and they've got a garden in it. There's, there's, there's gardens that have, um, you know, pools and... and um, areas for, for for kids and families and veggie gardens there's some big expansive gardens in the hills there's some beautiful modern contemporary gardens so there's a whole gamut of different types and styles of gardens in, uh, big and small all right and uh, how do people access this festival so up until this coming thursday you can pre-purchase your tickets um it's ten dollars for a single garden pass or fifty dollars for an all garden pass so that's only five dollars a garden which is actually half what we at open gardens normally charge anyway so you've got until thursday to pre-purchase you can also um purchase through cash or card at the gate but if you can help the uh, the lovely ladies from the sa country women's association who'll be um on the gates at all of the gardens they've got a few stalls at a few of the gardens and all 100 percent of the proceeds of this event will be going to um this amazing group the sa country women's association and if people would like to be able to see visually some of the uh I suppose, pictures of these gardens, they're all available on web. Oh, totally. We've got a fabulous website. So go and just Google the SA Landscape Festival and you can um, read up on the uh, all the individual gardens, see some photos, um, see which ones you might want to um, attend or um, work out your route over the whole weekend about how you're going to attack, attack it. So it's going to be a great and fun weekend for everyone involved. And we're talking with Jamie McElwain, one of our top uh, uh, landscapers, and very shortly we're going to talk... Uh, ornamental grasses but we need some questions too don't we let's kick it off with a call from uh, john in heathfield um john you have a lawn question for us i have is it a good time to sow a lawn now uh i'll say just um the ground temperatures um uh i'll, I'll back up there i'll say depends on what seed you're putting that's in. right depends um, on whether he's going to put on a winter grass or yeah, a summer grass yeah <laughs> so if you Trying to sow things like, uh, I don't know, a, a buffalo kaikuyu lawn, then I'd probably say it's probably too late because they're going to be coming to their dormancy fairly shortly. But there's a lot of annual uh, grasses, um, your, I don't know, chewing fescues, annual rye, etc., that you can buy. In fact, some of these grasses germinate all year round, believe it or not. It's a lot slower in winter. Um, so if you're just getting a, if you've just got a sort of a, like a budget seed mix, uh, knock your socks off. Um, um, I'd probably suggest trying to roll it in um, to, 
to increase the germination uh, speed, which activates it when you roll it, um, and also compacts the soil. So when we get some rain, you don't get rilling and um, washing away of uh, of the soil. So yes, you can to some degree, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, rye rye grass would do it, would it? Yeah, rye grass would be all right. Okay. Fine. Thank you, Jamie. If you talk to a landscape, and they'll say, right, oh, well, listen, uh, in a landscape you'll need screening plants uh, around the, the, uh, the, the, brand, uh, the, the, the boundaries, and you need trees for shade, and you probably need uh, uh, shrubs and, and annuals and perennials for colour. Um, but uh, grass, what's the role of grass in a landscape? It's, um, it's, uh, it has a huge role. Uh, grasses uh offer uh, grasses in their own right are a different plant to um you know a lot of general flowering perennials that you could sort of put them in a category like you might do let's say succulents so for that reason alone they can be um somewhat divisive people either you know like them or or or, or otherwise in fact i'd probably say Everyone listening today, there's, you, I could probably lump you, you know, very grossly into three categories. There's probably people like me who love grasses. There'll be a group number two. You kind of, you kind of like grasses, but you're not exactly sure how they're going to fit into, you know, your garden, and you don't know what to use. And then there's group three who are the, yeah, no, not for me. And that's great because diversity is um, what we need. And if everyone loved and used the same plants, that all the gardens would be boring. But what grasses do is they really help the other plants around them to look even better. The grasses in their own right look great. Um, there are some small grasses that, um, you know, you can use whether they be you know, green or variegated in, in, in colour and some of them don't have much of a flower. And then you can get some uh, grasses like the, let's say, the Calamagrossus and the Miscanthus that look fabulous with their large um, sort of soft uh, feathery kind of um, foliage and then they flower sort of, sort of uh, mid to late summer um, and can can then really steal the show in um, not only uh, perennial gardens uh, exotic perennial gardens but native gardens as well so they come in different shapes and sizes in a landscape is it better to have a mass planting of grasses or do you interspose uh, the grasses with other shrubs so you've got a cottage garden and you have a, a, a few grasses here and, and uh, some perennials there yeah totally uh, so with when, when i'm talking about like generally speaking yes i think uh having grasses on mass generally looks better than just having um one as a feature um plant particularly when you're looking at some of the smaller ones so what you can do with some of the smaller grasses is have what we call a naturalized drift or you know you can block plant with them so they look like they're supposed to be there then you combine them with another ground cover or perhaps a rounded shrub um and then something a little bit more floriferous and and, and pretty behind that you're giving when you look at a garden, you're giving the eye some diversity um, in form and foliage, um, and that is the essence of what makes a garden look great. And if you're putting in grasses, um, do they are they a set-and-forget type of a plant, or are they the type of thing that, a bit like if you're growing annuals, you've got to be at them all the time? Yeah, uh, a bit of both. Uh, grasses are undeniably hardy. Uh, they can deal with heat, they can deal with frost, they can deal with uh, seaside conditions, uh, sandy soils and clay soils. So for that reason alone, they tick that hardiness box um, as far as maintenance goes they're also quite tough there's a lot of uh, grasses that don't require 
touching for many years, for instance. Um, I drove past uh, an RSL that I landscaped. It must have been 15 years ago, and I only just by chance drove past it last week, and it's, the grasses that I used then are still looking fabulous in a car park that's quite neglected. Um, so... In some regards, you don't need to prune them. Um, what I find, though, in some grasses, in the ones you don't touch, uh, such as some of the lamandras, for instance, they can get a bit what I call thatchy, so that sort of dead grass in there. And when you think about a grass, whether it's exotic or native, think of it like a lawn. It just needs a haircut. So chop it down hard, and then you watch it. You watch them power away, and then you'll have a brand new plant, um, often within a month or two. Um, some of the ornamental grasses, um, particularly the exotic ones, uh, do need an annual prune. So I, I generally leave them well into the sort of the end of winter because they can look fabulous in winter as they fawn off in colour. Knock them down to the ground, and then you just watch them grow in spring. We've been talking about the effect of rain and people that uh, uh, have got roses are going to have to protect their roses from black spot. There are gardeners that don't want to use chemicals. Can you classify grasses in that area that you know, they don't need uh, too much um, maintenance in terms of, of diseases no. and, and fungal? To, uh, no, I, I, I couldn't even think of a, <laughs> a, a pest or a plant that really attacks them. I mean, look, some of the, if you're looking at some of the grasses I'm going to talk, we're talking about today aren't just your traditional grasses. I mean, you could lump them in as, you know, sedges and rushes as well. So when you look at plants like, let's say, um, Ophiopogon, the Mondo grasses or Liriope, um, snails can have a crack at them. So then you get some mottling on the foliage. So yes, there is a, you know, that's probably the, at, at, at the worst example of, uh, of a critter attacking a grass. So a bit of a pet-friendly bait out or get get uh, control those snails and you're on your way. A lot of experience and knowledge in the studio this morning. So if you'd like to talk grasses, ornamental grasses, or perhaps you have a landscaping question, we've got uh, Jamie McElwain in the studio, landscape expert, along with John Lamb on ABC Talkback Gardening, Alice from Saddleworth. What's your question for Jamie, Alice? Oh, hey, guys. Nice work, you three. Um, well, quickly, if I might, I think I've got an exotic, big, sort of classic, fluffy pampas seed sort of frond. Is that a weedy risk, or could I sow them and just have them in the backyard? Yeah, I'd be I'd be really careful there. There are there are a lot of grasses. Um, a lot of them have come in from Africa and Asia that can prolificate, um, and they are not great when it comes to our natural environment so i certainly wouldn't be encouraging um you to go for that one the nurseries these days uh if you are into your grasses um are doing a fabulous job of providing plants that are either uh sterile or have low fertility or in some cases um they just produce like a one sex clone like some of the lamandras are all male so they just can't reproduce these are the grasses that i would urge you toward other than those sort of grasses because some of the grasses are really viable have very viable seed and become a major weed issue which we don't want one of yeah. those probably would be feather grass, wouldn't it? Uh, that it, it's beautiful as a grass; it grows up and it has this lovely sort of uh, uh, flowering uh, material at, at the top. But uh, as you mentioned, there's now it's possible not to have the one that goes feral, but yep. there's uh, there's a, a decent kind of one that that's quite okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 there are two sort of there's one one native and one exotic grass that um, or there's the penicetum, of course, uh, which John's talking about. There's a um, a sterile version um, of that called nafray, which is a um, a beautiful uh, foxtail grass. Um, 
and you can use them in your native or non-native uh, situations. But yeah, you do have to be super super careful about the grasses that you choose and not to spread them around. You're just mentioning a, a grass. Now people are sort of saying, okay, I'm interested in grasses, ornamental grasses, um, but I don't know what to call them. Could you just give us an idea of uh, two or three different types of grasses that would fit into uh, a, a landscape? Yeah, so let's... Um, I mean, everyone's got their different gardens, and we'll just do a couple of natives and a, a, a few exotics. So um, the little Festuca glauca. So if you're after a really bright blue-grey striking small plant that's a great um, ground cover, suppresses weeds, um, you can plant them in naturalised drifts. Um, that's a fabulous plant. So okay, that's Festuca glauca. Yeah, I go, go say, yeah, most important that when you say the name, say it slowly because people are writing down yes. these names. So and, just, uh, if you just Google a blue fescue, that's what that blue one fescue. is. Blue um, fescue. Um, there's, and there's um, a couple of poas that I like. Um, the one's called Eskdale. Um, it has sort of a blue-green foliage, sits at about 80 centimetres, quite a, a, a nice sort of upright grass. And there's another one with a fabulous name called Suggin Buggin. And <laughs> those of you who are like me from well, from uh, from Victoria, um, Suggin Buggin's in um, East Gippsland. Uh, it's a grass that comes from there, again, a very blue-grey, um, about a metre high and wide um, they're winter active, so they can they they move and grow through winter. Great plants, native plants, native uh, people wanting to bring wildlife back into their garden. Um, how adaptable are the ornamental grasses in in filling that role? Yeah, much the same as the natives. So things like the lizards love them. The birds, um, if they're some of the bigger grasses, they can nest in them. Uh, they can eat the seeds, uh, particularly of um, plants like the panicums. So they are great for our wildlife. Yes. Troy, I'm surprised that we haven't had a text from somebody saying, oh, but what about the fire danger? Yep. Mm. So I was, the, the fire danger, it, it, look, it's a great question. Um, these grasses, uh, particularly some of the drier Astoria grasses, um, if that's a word, uh, will will combust. There's no doubt about that. So if you're in a really fire-prone uh, area, uh, you'd have to use these with somewhat caution. However, in the situation that I would present, uh, you might use them in a you know a perennial border surrounded by plants like sedum, for instance, and salvias, which are um, you know not too bad when it comes to standing up to a, to a fire. So it just depends on how you go. In nature, uh, you look at two of our most common grasses, which is, the, or let's say, the uh, spinifex, the triodia, and um, kangaroo cu- kangaroo grass, the thermata. Um, in nature, they get harvested or they get eaten by wallabies and kangaroos, and also fire comes through, sweeps sweeps through, and they represent into foliage. So they're used to fires, but I wouldn't want to be encouraging people in fire-prone areas to sort of plant you know big drifts of some of these grasses yeah they say that uh, attitudes are based on experience and people have got the experience of driving along a highway and seeing these grasses grow there and in spring they look lovely and in autumn they look disgusting and that's the attitude of a lot of people have got to ornamental grasses tell us about why they're not well, it's actually the opposite. Like in in with the ornamental grasses, and let's just look at uh, I've mentioned before the like the Calamagrostis and some and the Panicums and one of the hero plants, the Miscanthus. I mean, they have beautiful foliage coming up, presenting in late winter, early spring, and then from early summer, in particular with the Calamagrostis, you have these beautiful uh, sort of plumes that come up on them, and then they actually increase and improve. Um, throughout the summer and into autumn so right now you'd say where we are in, in autumn like the miscanthus is just they're just peaking at the moment and you will not find a better backlit plant 
with the sun in that golden hour, if you've got a beautiful miscanthus in flower with all its plumage, cannot be beaten. Um, and then you will leave all those. You leave it up, leave the plants up, all, you know, well into winter. Let them fawn off. Um, they catch the dew in the morning when it gets cold. They're stunning plants. And like I said before, you just knock them back hard with a hedge bar in uh, late winter, and off the cycle goes again. And that's that is it. All right. So take us through the life cycle. They say start to grow in spring and take us through that autumn period and and what to do yeah. in that autumn period Look, the, to regenerate them the the grasses i'm talking about it basically have rhizomes and that's how they spread so they don't they, they sort of spread they sort of mooch slowly outward um so they the foliage presents in spring gets taller and taller some grow to a meter some grow to you know two meters in in, in the case of some of them um and then as i said from late probably early to mid-summer you'll start seeing the the uh, the canes come up with the the the, the flowers or the plumes of uh, of flowers on top of the foliage and uh, they really come into their own they really straw off and have that sort of you know almost wheat like look coming into um, into autumn and they fawn off they do uh, go a brown colour which I think is quite attractive um, and then um, you just leave them be until they look ratty and you knock them back and the cycle starts again they obviously look great in a, in a big garden in small gardens and particularly uh, small gardens tend to have a lot of their plants growing in containers how adaptable are grasses to containers and, and uh, how do they look in a small garden yeah uh, there are certainly grasses grasses are uh, um, very hardy plants, as I've alluded to, and will uh, grow reasonably fine in in in, uh, in pots. Um, there are some plants that you know they don't all have to be huge either. There's a lot of smaller um, native and non-native or exotic uh, grasses that you can use in smaller gardens. Some are um, like uh, there's a panicum called heavy metal, which is one of the switch grasses from America. That's very stiffly upright growing, so you can grow them you know in a, in a bed that's probably no bigger than sort of 40 centimeters wide or 50 centimeters wide. Okay, so they're the ornamental grasses. They obviously have a, a role. Uh, the question then is, where do you get them? Yeah, so the nurseries these days, and the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because, um, you know, looking at not so much trends, grasses have been around for as long as gardens have been around. There's, there's, there's no denying that. But if you start looking at your nurseries, you'll start seeing that the grass section, um, and there already is a grass section in your nurseries, is going to get bigger and bigger because the grasses are so adaptable to, to so many different uses that they're becoming more popular as people become aware of them and all the positive things about them that I've sort of alluded to today. So, um, again, from your nurseries, uh, you'll see the, uh, the, 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 uh, the selection of them, the different types of them grow and grow, which is, I think is great. All right. And if you went onto the web and pl- just put in ornamental grasses in a landscape... Would you get something reasonable? Oh, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's, there's a real, there's a real push at the moment. I mean, a lot of listeners at home will have heard of Pete Udolph and this naturalistic planting, and that's again, that's not for everyone. But there is, um, th- there wouldn't be a perennial gardener or a landscape designer around that is not using grasses. So they're whether you like them or not, they're they're they're, they're here, and uh, it'd be great to see people using them more. And I suspect that there'll be grasses in some of the landscapes that are on display next weekend and the Landscape Festival. Yes, well tied in, John. There certainly will be. (laughs) (laughs) Can you give us the details of that one more time? Sal has just texted in saying we want to participate. What have we got to do? Right. So, uh, again, you can just Google the SA Landscape Festival. Uh, There's uh, a link there if you're wanting to 
purchase your tickets, which I'd, I'd, I'd love people to do because it's going to save the the awesome ladies from the SACWA uh, managing uh, that payment, which, I mean, they can easily do, but if you can prepay before Thursday of this week, that'd be super. Um, you can pay at the gate, uh, cash or card, but if you can, if you can get those uh, uh, tickets prior to Thursday, that'd be super. This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Troy Simcock. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And landscaper Jamie McElwain is sticking around to take a few calls as well. Uh, Sierra, uh, Jamie will tackle yours very shortly. But uh, up first we have Paige. You want to talk about rhubarb, Paige? Yes, I'm just wondering is it the right time to give some rhubarb or rhubarb cones or whatever they're called away? The little crowns of them. Ideally, it would be better to wait till the end of winter. You'll find that they're coming into new growth. Right now, you'll find that the crowns have got their leaves and those leaves are storing energy back into the crown. So if you move them now, you might be successful, but uh, depending on uh, the health of the rhubarb crown, you might lose it. So if you wait till that uh, late winter, early spring period, that's absolutely Ideal. In the meantime, where you're going to plant it, and I'd suggest that uh, you prepare your soil now, get the soil with lots of organic matter, some old cow manure, and get that ready so that when you uh, put in a new one, or even if you move the old one, but move it into a new site, I think that would be ideal. Yeah, well, I'm giving it to a friend, and she's putting it in a huge wine barrel. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, she's got it already, but um, on my rhubarb, there's like a dozen or more crowns do I just shovel one out of by breaking it up or well if you were doing it in springtime you could do that but I would just be a little bit concerned if you dug up the whole crown and was very gentle and didn't break it up and move it into uh, your friend's uh, container you'd probably get away with it but if I wouldn't be messing around with it too much at this time of the year thanks for your call Paige Peter from Hackney tell us about your mandarins Um, John the uh problem is that this is normally the big crop year we trees tend to alternate um, and a lot of the small fruit are dropping off and have been over the past month or so the trees get plenty of water and um, there's a line with an orange couple of mandarins and a lemon tree and, and the lemon and the orange uh, haven't been dropping and uh, We've lost, I'd say, about half the crop. There's still a reasonable number of fruit there, but not as many as we'd normally get. Yes, and this is the on-year for the Mandy? This is the on-year, yeah. yeah. Righto, righto. Well, um, two factors. One is um, you'll find that uh, the previous season has a big influence on the current season, and it could well be that there was a bit of a setback last year when uh, the plants were being... uh, Uh, formed and uh, then you find that we come into the current season now you're saying that you've put on plenty of water is uh, is that correct enough enough to keep the trees going and healthy yes not excessive all right well there's something that's happened to the root system that's caused a stress 
And so the little calculator inside the mandarin tree is, is working out and saying, how many mandis can we bring to fruition? And uh, it, it works out and, so, and, and you might get, um, you might be watering it, but the water's not deep enough or it may be uh, some other factor in terms of fertilising or nu- lack of nutrition. There's something there that's stressed the root system probably well back in the growing season, earlier in the growing season. And uh, that's being reflected in the fact that the tree can't sustain and can't carry the full crop. And so it's saying, right, we're going to have to drop 10% now. And a few weeks later, it says we'll drop another 10%. And that's what's going on inside the plant. I don't think there's anything you can do about that to stop what's going on. That's predetermined. What you need to do is stimulate the root system, which means you've got to stimulate the soil, get your soil into maximum uh, health. And if you do that, uh, that overcomes a lot of uh, stress problems when you've got your tree growing during the growing season. ABC Talkback Gardening, Troy Simcock with John Lamb. We're also joined by landscaper Jamie McElwain. Now, this one is for you from Sierra. Jamie, what's your question, Sierra? Hi. Um, we have a large oyster plant that we would like to get rid of. Just want to know the best way about going about that. Right. Wouldn't it be good if oyster plants behave themselves? I mean, they are such a nice... Uh, nice looking plant and they have that uh, lovely uh, flower spike on them but they they spread and they uh, can become weedy they also have a taproot that uh, uh, goes down a long way and which makes them hard to eradicate Um, i would suggest uh, a couple of options for you first of all if you look at the back of the leaf of the acanthus uh, mollus the oyster plant you can dab on or paint on some herbicide that can affect that now what happens usually um, is they will often wilt and die back and then they represent um, with less vigor and then you can do that again the other option would be is to cut the stem low to the ground and then dab it again um, with some herbicide and go from there so you could use uh, it's it's a little bit hard to get hold of but there's a product you can use in combination with glyphosate um, I know that's a bad word here, John, but it does work. No, no, um, it works. Uh, and, there uh, are times when uh, there is no alternative, yes, I well, believe, the, the, or no effective alternative. Uh, uh, anyway, There's going. another chemical called metsulfuron, M-E-T-S-U-L-P-H-U-R-O-N, um, that you can bind with the glyphosate, which um, can help kill um, those plants like um, acanthus um, and cannas and those sort of things that can get away from you with a fleshy root system that goes down deep. Um, uh, so maybe a specialised fodder store perhaps yes, um, uh, might stock, stock the that. Metzolfuran is one I um, reticent to mention on the program because it's one of these new age chemicals where you just use a smidgen and it causes, you know, and it's very, very effective. And if you put on too much, you can sort of ruin a yeah. lot of plants. People, people use it often as a, as a, it's a residual herbicide, really. Yes, as that, a brush on. That, that stops um, things germinating. Now, the, oh, reason I'm right, suge- yes. the reason I'm suggesting it, using it this way is because it's not going into the soil. You are dabbing it directly onto the stem of the plant, yes. so you're not spraying it everywhere. So, And the reason also before, just to prelude that, is the acanthus is a, is a brute to get rid of. Um, you can, I have actually killed it just with straight glyphosate. Um, it just 
I just had to repeat the, the, the application of it as it represented. Now, you're mentioning glyphosate, um, which is systemic. Uh, one up on that is, is the triclopur, the blackberry coolers. So, Would that be yeah, effective you could, or not? you could certainly try triclopur. Um, and, um, I mean, that's recommended, I think it's six parts kero to one part triclopur. It's basically your tree killer. So uh, you could also, I don't see why that, that, that should work as well. Could I just uh, divert, if I may... Troy, uh, and just talk about uh, uh, trees that need to be um, killed or uh, the importance. Uh, let's say you've got a, um, uh, one of those trees that sucker, um, and if you chop it down and it's still growing, it'll send up suckers. Could like you like your friend the Rubinia? The Rubinia, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to explain why it's most important that you kill the tree before you, you, you take oh, you chop it down. So if, I'm sure there's people at home that have... Uh, poplars are the same. There's elms, uh, Rubinias do it. If you, you know, if you cut the head off a tree and you'll, you'll find that there's just pups coming up or suckers coming up everywhere in your lawn and in your garden, how far they spread is just amazing. So you need to kill the tree... The tree needs to be completely dead before you chop it out. So um, you can either get an arborist in to do that or you can treat it yourself. Um, the best time to do it is not, especially for things like rabinia that, that are deciduous and slop in winter, the best time to do them is probably in spring when they're, they're, they're sort of the, the vascular part of the plant, the cambium, um, is quite active. So they take up the, uh, the herbicide uh, quickly. So I find if you do do, do a cut, um, apply the chemical um, it tends to suck it into the system really quickly right. and, and the chemical you're using is the triclopur yeah. which is blackberry killer and correct uh, yeah. very, very and you don't need to drill holes in the middle of it the middle of the tree is just it's just wood it's the outside layer that cambium layer so that the outside say 10 or 20 centimetres um, is where the business part of any plant is. Yes. Um, my rabinias, I think I've talked about them a number of times, and uh, would you believe um, one, uh, it was chopped down about five or six years ago, or was killed and then chopped down, but would you believe the lady next door had this lovely tree growing oh, in no. her back garden and it was it looked lovely because it was nice and fresh and I knocked on the door and said I said excuse me I think that's a weed you've got out there and she said oh no 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 <laughs> I love this tree and uh, fortunately she's no longer in that house somebody else has moved in and the first thing they did after they, I told them what it was yeah. uh, they've got rid of it it's such a shame too because they're such a they are a beautiful tree yes. um, but I, I don't I don't know if they should be sold at nurseries to be honest with you I thoroughly agree. Mignon is in Chunga. How can we help you with your pears? Manchurian pears. We're on an acreage property and um, about 14 months ago we cut down four probably 40-year-old pine trees along the driveway and I'd now like to put some deciduous trees um, there. But I'm just wondering with 40 years of pine trees whether there's any chance that um, that they'll grow or will the soil just be so depleted that it's not worth trying? It's funny you should say that because I've taken out 21 uh, huge big pine trees from a, a verge next to my property and have rehabilitated it growing um, a whole assortment of different plants. So to answer your question, yes, you can. Um, clearly you might be, uh, I'm not sure if you've had the stumps removed on the, the pine trees or not. Um, yeah, they've been ground, they were ground out at the same time. Yeah, so I'd probably also get rid of or avoid 
there'll be a whole lot of uh, mulched uh, tree clippings in that in that uh, area or the vicinity of where the stump was. So you could, you know, if you can get rid of that. But you it, first of all, you might identify where the stumps were so you can plant away from them if that's possible. Um, the soil that will be there will be somewhat, I'll use the word, hostile. So pine trees are, um, are quite a, a aggressive plants. There's a lot of things that don't grow under pine trees. Um, this will probably be acidic, hydrophobic, um, lacking nutrient organisms, um, you name it. Um, so that's your chance now to incorporate organic matter and treat that soil as best you can. Possibly get an earth mover in there and rip some um, good quality soil in where you're going to plant your, if you said pyrus, your Manchurian pears or whatever you choose to put there. Um, so go for it, I would say, but just uh, prepare your soil well. On that, on that particular point, uh, the Manchurian pears, beautiful, they're deciduous. Is it too late in the season to plant deciduous trees? Or, and would you be better off waiting till winter? Or would, uh, I'd say really no. I, I think now's still okay. I mean, the trees, the, the, the ground temperature's still um, warm enough degree. for 18 them degrees to, yeah. here in Adelaide. No, go for it. Um, if you've got time to get them in the ground, um, uh, they might settle in somewhat before winter and then um, as they represent in spring they'll uh, push away quite well Daniel from North Adelaide how can we help you? Oh, hi there this is a Jamie question about a grass I've got uh, on my front verge a whole lot of uh, Lamandra tannicas yep. um, which were planted 12-13 uh, years ago so they're very mature most of them have the normal kind of habitus where, they, where the strap leaves kind of come straight out of the ground but some of them uh, have uh, developed kind of stems that that uh, protrude quite a, a long way above the ground, which doesn't look very attractive. So my question is, if I chop those off at the ground level, will they regenerate and look more normal, or will I see the risk I might kill them if I get too aggressive? No, no. Like uh, uh, For plants like your tanikas, um, they will respond quite well to being pruned back very hard. Um, I would suggest... Um, you could certainly do it now, but if you... Uh, probably late winter early spring as they're coming into um into active growth is probably the best time but they are extremely resilient plants so why don't you just um do one and cut it back and you can cut them back really hard like to you know there's there's not a green you know to the sort of herbaceous white sort of stemmy part of the of the root plate there um you can cut them back and uh see how it regrows often within um you know two or three weeks you'll see some new growth and then they just push away they'll grow 10 mil a day just about daniel from north adelaide thank you for your call and we invite you to give us a ring too on abc talkback gardening and you can also win yourself the April edition of the Gardening Australia magazine. I have two copies to give away right now. As long as you haven't won one in the last month, uh, we're going to take two calls at random if you'd like the Gardening Australia magazine. Let's go to Barry in uh, Craigburn Farm and you want to remove your yuccas. Is that right? Yes, that's right, mate. Um, I've got uh, two very large ones, about nearly seven metres tall, that have been in for many years and just seem to be doubling in size every year. I want to take them out completely and... Um, cut them off down to the ground level and I'm just wondering whether, whether how do I go about do I poison them after that to make sure they don't reshoot yeah totally yuccas um, are we're getting all the good ones in today John yuccas are <laughs> another <laughs> a plant that are also hard to get rid of so yuccas have a very fibrousy uh, uh, root mass below ground level and they can represent quite readily after being hacked back you think you've got them licked but then uh, all of a sudden you see some foliage represent so mm-hmm. um, I would most certainly uh, use your triclopur tree killer with uh, kerosene one part triclopur to six parts kero um, cut the yucca uh, down and then uh, paint that uh, 
paint that concoction on. Um, just wait a while and see if anything um, comes back. They're, they're, um, they're pretty tough plants, those yuccas. Yeah, yeah, they certainly are, and they're just getting bigger and bigger. So yeah, and just, uh, at, at destroying everything. Yeah, they, look, they are. They, they've got their place, but uh, they can they be, can become quite cumbersome, and also uh, with their spiky leaves, quite dangerous for you know people. Yeah, absolutely. Grow. Yeah. So um, one part of the tree killer plus um, six, parts, six parts of kerosene. Go for it. Beautiful. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you very you. much for your call. And uh, Frank is in Erindale. Good day. I've got a grafted uh, lemon and lime tree. Uh, seems that one in three years the lime comes on, otherwise it's two years of lemon. Um, the lime's got about um, oh, nine, ten limes on it uh, that are sort of ready to harvest, but now it's fruiting again. What's going on? Plus, the lemon has decided to fruit as well. Interesting, isn't it? What, what uh, is going yep. on? Oh, it's just seasonal conditions. You'll find, particularly depending on which uh, lemon you've got and which type of lime you've got, um, they flower, um, and the lemons in particular, you'll find that... Uh, do you know what variety of lemon you've got? Is it a... No, uh, lemon is a... Is a pretty sure it was, is a Lisbon. I don't know about yeah. the lime. All right. Well, I mean, uh, the more uh, you cut it back, the more little new branches you get, and the more flowers you get, and the more lemons you get. And uh, by trimming it uh, on three or four times during the growing season so long as you're not in a frost area, you'll find that you can have lemons on your tree nearly all year round. As for the lime, it's not quite the same. And it's got the lime and the lemon on the same rootstock, is that correct? Yep, yep. It's yeah. And yeah. is the lemon tree or the lemon side of it taking over from the lime already? Um, yes, a, a little bit, but um, it, it's more a case of the lemon fruits too two years in three, you know, the lime only one year in three, uh, which is why I was surprised to see the lime, uh, sorry, the lemon um, also step up this year. But, yeah, like it, the lime fruited in, you know, late late spring and now it's doing it again. Yes, well, you'll find that uh, it's uh, temperature and uh, day length are the uh, things that create the hormones that will create uh, the flowers, and you'll find that in spring and also autumn, and often the things that normally flower in autumn, you'll see them spotting in autumn simply as a result of that. It's just the, the daylight hours are the same in spring and autumn, and uh, the temperatures also, and that just we, generates... We're very pleased. What's that? We're very, we're very pleased okay. to have you know, lots of fruit. Well, the important thing is you should be getting fruit off those every year, and I would be paying more attention to improving the soil, the health of the soil. Get some uh, aged cow manure and use that as a mulch. You'll find that very, very beneficial. And I would be watering. Uh, uh, citrus need a little bit of nutrient often, and so I'd be putting, say, once a month during the growing season, using a liquid organic fertilizer, uh, probably uh, at about half strength, and, and using that regularly uh, so that you improve the soil health. And you should be able to get both lemons and limes every year. Congratulations to Margaret in Seaford and Andrew in Evanston Park. You've won yourself a copy of the April edition of the Gardening Australia magazine. Appreciate you being part of the show. Jackie is there. You want to do some uh, transplanting, Jackie? Yes. Um, our neighbours are um, doing a garden makeover. So um, we took the opportunity of saying, well, we take their weeping mulberry. It's about 15 years old and um, had been a little bit um, ignored for a while. So it uh, was taken out of the ground by the demolition crew um, 
last Thursday and we managed to get it into a hole in the ground in our front yard, just literally the other side of the fence. And um, the roots have been quite severely uh, cut back. So we've um, planted it with um, uh, sea sole and some fertiliser, um, organic matter, that sort of thing. Our question really is, should we trim the top of the tree, or the, the, the leaves, etc., or just wait and see what happens? So there's a direct correlation between the the, well, I'll just use the word damage that's been done to the root system to the crown of the plant. So you've lost root mass, so you have to lose um, some foliage now. So I would say, you know, you're going to have to probably cut it back by at least half, I would suggest, because your plant is transpiring, it's using energy and water that the root system can no longer provide. So by doing that, it's going to ensure a half a chance of uh, a successful transplant. Um, there's always a risk when, when transplanting um, any tree, especially ones that are 15 years old, um, possibly would have been better done in winter, but clearly you couldn't have avoided that right now. So I think everything you've done with the, the sea sole and the treatment is great, and I would most certainly be um, uh, taking to the foliage. Could we That's take, right. Yeah, could we take a look at uh, root uh, balls? It worries me, Jamie, that you're watching a television program and some of these makeover programs where they're making up the house and they're making up the landscape. And they dig a hole, then they take the plant out of a great big container and just take it straight out and plonk it in. And I see that the root ball has got roots going around and around and around. What's the consequences of planting a tree that you've just bought that's root-bound? Yeah, uh, not great. I mean, it's it, sometimes it's actually... I mean, we're diverting away from this caller. I hope you've got your information there. But um, often it's better... I'd prefer to put a smaller plant in the ground that's got a um, a root system that hasn't been stuck in a pot for ages. The, the generally the the smaller plants tend to overtake those bigger plants that you pay a whole lot more for. Um, if you do want to get an established uh, tree in the ground straight up, then having a look at the the the, the the root after you've removed the pot and seeing what it's doing, teasing it out, um, allowing it to want to spread laterally once you've got it in the ground is the key there. John Paul is back. Hello, John. Yeah, uh, I was just asking um, Lee and John, if, uh, Jamie and John, if possible, um, is there a gentler way of getting rid of a robinia? Um, I know it was a question, like a question about triclopore, but um, I know you can't touch the ground for like a few months after using triclopore. No, with the with the triclopyr, it's you're, you're going to apply it just to the cut part of the plant, so it's going to be held within that the the the, the root system of of that plant. It won't it won't it won't transfer out into the soil. So, unfortunately, there's no gentle way of dealing with robinias. They are a bullish um, plant. Well, at least the rootstock is, and it's um, uh, you know. It, Looking at some weeds, you can try and um, sheet mulch or cover it, cover the plant so they can't photosynthesize. But what will happen with the robinia root is they're so advantageous is they'll just keep on spreading and wanting to push up. Um, yeah, they're um, they're um, they're like a <laughs> just a triffid plant. There. You can just come back to the chemicals and, and the, the, the matter that John was concerned uh, was. Uh, the chemical triclopore and glyphosate, people are frightened of them because I think if, if they spray the ground, 
it will affect the plants growing in the ground. Could you just reinforce the fact that uh, they are systemic and why that's different? Well, with the... Uh, I, I guess I'm not going to try and get into oh, no, the whole... I haven't given you much time either. <laughs> yeah, so look, all we're saying is just with, the, with, with these particular plants, cutting and dabbing onto the, the part of the plant, we're not spraying um, all around the place, we're just uh, directly applying this chemical to the, 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 the wound or the cut of the plant to um, stop it from growing, to kill it off. Yeah, okay. And Troy, I just need to mention that uh, next week... Brett Draper will be sitting here in the chair doing the program and it just means that uh, the tomato survey which I was going to talk about next week it has to be postponed one week so uh, it'll be the following week we'll be talking tomatoes but Brett Draper will be here talking roses I would suspect uh, in next week's program. And hopefully having not encountered any uh, black spot this weekend. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And so uh, on behalf of Jamie, thank you very much for your contribution this morning. Lovely having you in the studio. And I'll say until next week, good gardening.